You are listening to 91.9 WDRT Radio Free Space Viroqua, and this is The Conscious Bro Show. Hello, everybody. My name is William Kyle Glenn. I go by Kyle, and sitting across from me is Robert Karbelnikov. Robert is our guest today. I'm really excited to have him on. I don't... When did I meet you? Not, not not too long ago, like within the year, right? Yeah, maybe maybe a year ago, yeah. Yeah, maybe a year ago from now. We've, we've become good friends since then, and... Um, I'm excited to have him on. We're going to talk about, uh, he's involved in biodynamics. Um, he is a teacher at the Thoreau College, helping start that, and a lot of other things. You want to introduce yourself, Robert? Sure, Kyle. Thanks for having me on your show. Yeah. It's really, really fun to be here and, and talk with you. Um, so yeah, I have worked, I've had a long career in the sustainable agriculture movement. I've worked for several um, farmer associations, uh, organic farmers, biodynamic farmers, um, farmers who are trying to do good things on their land. And I've, I've helped uh, build up these organizations and help grow them. And I've been very involved in the local food movement, um, getting shortening the distance between the food and the plate and starting community-supported agriculture projects and farmers markets and things like that. And, um, and about two years ago, I moved up to Viroqua to be involved in helping start Thoreau College, which is a new initiative here in Viroqua. And um, we're working with young people 18 to 25 and trying to create a really innovative, dynamic learning environment for them. So that's a little bit about me. Nice, thank you. Uh, I'm ex- kind of excited about the stuff that I hear is happening at Thoreau. What, what are some of the stuff that you teach over there? Well, th- at Thoreau College, we are trying to create um, a learning environment that's grounded in three fundamental principles or activities. One of them is labor, actually. We believe that young people in our time are really hungry to get their hands dirty and to learn to work and engage in practical ways with life. So uh, the young people in Thoreau College um, learn how to grow food and they work on farms and they uh, we have a greenhouse. We have Thoreau's Garden, a greenhouse nice. in Viroqua and they help run that greenhouse. So that's part of it, labor, practical, practical work. Secondly, the college is co-run by the students. They're involved in a number of decision-making bodies that help do the work of the college. And so they get to feel that they're not just at a college as a kind of consumer of knowledge or information, but they're actually helping create the college. And then thirdly um, is the academic component. And so our academics is grounded on the one hand, you could say in the great books tradition, we really dive into deep fundamental texts and have rich conversations. There's also a lot of arts and creative writing and learning about community building and leadership and spirituality and just creating a holistic learning environment where a young person can um, orient to their life and, Mm -hmm. and find themselves. It seems like a lot of it from what I see or maybe what you're involved in teaching has to do with kind of almost like returning to nature or something or like really connecting in with nature or learning how to survive in nature? Yeah, um, we have a real emphasis on connecting to the natural world. Mm -hmm. And so, for example, the students do 
four different solos in the course of the year where they go out and they spend 24 hours or eventually 48 hours on their own in nature, even wow. in the middle of winter. That's awesome. <laughs> this is sort of inspired by our namesake, Henry David Thoreau, who found a lot of value in going out to nature. Um, and so that's, that's important. They do canoeing expedition, walking, camping expeditions. We're about to do a summer program that involves a uh, the first week of it is a walkabout all throughout the Driftless region, learning, wow. learning about the history. and So yes, we, we see great value in this deep reconnection to the natural world, and there's a great hunger for it in young people. Right. Uh, and me as well. <laughs> yes. Uh, so one of the things I would say that really like intrigued me about you was that, I mean, not only from my eyes, not only are you connecting with the natural world on like a physical level, but you seem to be able to kind of go further to connect with it on a spiritual level. Yes. Yes. So this is touching into the, the perspective of biodynamic agriculture that you're talking about. Yeah. Which yeah. I've been a big part of the biodynamic agriculture movement. And I guess one way you could think about that, Kyle, is, um, you know, so much of the environmental movement right now <clears throat> is focused on uh, what human beings need to stop doing, right? We need to not do this and not do that. And it, it winds up being framed around a narrative that somehow humans are just plain bad for this planet. And biodynamic agriculture comes at this question from a different perspective. It, it comes at agriculture from the perspective that humans and nature have a fundamentally um, good and intimate relationship if we cultivate that relationship and that and that we can actually enhance the beauty and health of the natural world farming can not only not do bad things to agriculture it can enhance agriculture and and that perspective is also grounded in the idea that the earth is more than a physical being just as a human being is more than a physical being we we are both beings of body soul and spirit you could say the earth has subtle dimensions it has an inner life it has an energy body you could say and so do human beings and so when we begin to think of the earth outside of the context of just being a physical resource but as a living being that with which we can have a relationship, it opens up all kinds of new possibilities. Wow. So when, <laughs> when you're doing something like, say, biodynamic farming, yeah. what are you hoping to achieve? Are you, are you you're recognizing this the earth as a living being and you're trying to connect to it? And, or... Well, in the first place, so let's, let's get clear. Biodynamic agriculture in the first place is grounded in um, good farming practices um, like crop rotations, like integrating crops and livestock on the same farm. So we know from looking out at nature that animals and plants generally like to be together in most ecosystems, mm -hmm. right? right? So in biodynamics, we want to design a farm that integrates plants and animals. We also want to look at how can we fertilize our farm out of the life of animals and out of green manures. And so we avoid using synthetic 
fertilizers and pesticides and herbicides. So a lot of biodynamics, you could say, is good, wise, organic agricultural practices. But in addition, um, yeah, there's an encouragement on the part of the farmer to really get to know their farm in an intimate way, to spend time walking the land, observing the way the light falls on this particular farm, the, the changing seasons and how they affect this land, and to really develop an intimate understanding of how nature is working in that particular place. And this this becomes a very practical thing because good farmers, any good farmer, has this intimate relationship with their land. That's what good farming is, but biodynamics, I would say, nurtures that or enhances that by teaching farmers about the subtle dimensions of the earth and about how the spiritual world is working in nature. And it, and it awakens farmers' curiosity and interest um, to go deeper. Right. So it's something that, um, well, it sounds like it's something that would enhance like the, a feeling of like reverence or peace in, in the farmer. Sounds like something. It does. It does, I would say. It gives a whole new meaning for a farmer uh, when they begin to understand the subtle dimensions of nature and how they are working in partnership with the subtle dimension of nature. So you see in biodynamics, there's this, Again, this understanding that the earth is longing to have a cooperative relationship with human beings. The beings of the earth want to be in cooperation with human beings and they want to be seen, right? So just imagine when you're out in the woods taking a walk, and I'm sure everyone's had this experience, just feeling wonder and reverence, feeling more present than you normally are when you're in nature, right? So what's happening in that moment? You're communing, I would say, in a subtle way. You're communing with the inner forces of nature, right? And this is something that can be developed. It can be trained, actually, to learn how to consciously commune with the subtle forces in nature. And when we do this, the natural world, I would suggest, greatly appreciates it. And, and, and then can educate us about how to design our farms, for example. And, and how to take care of it. How to take care of it. So I heard you say beings and subtle forces in nature. When you say beings, what are you referring to? Well, um, in biodynamics, we understand that the classical four elements, earth, water, air, and fire, are actually... Um, they're actually the manifestation of spiritual beings that are working in nature. And um, some people call these elemental beings or nature beings or nature forces. So these are the same beings that in folklore and in tradition, yes, there are all these traditions about because people used to be able to see these beings, right? The elves and the fairies and the gnomes and the sylphs older cultures knew of these beings but we've lost completely we've lost knowledge of these nature forces and what rudolf steiner who was the founder of biodynamics tried to do is to is to teach people a new pathway to working with these beings to understanding them not in some new age woo woo way not in 
um, like going back to pagan traditions, but actually what he called spiritual science. Really, it's like if these beings are part of the nature of reality, we need to understand how to work with them. And, and they're eager to have us try to understand them. How did, how did how did he know? How did he know? You say spiritual science, so he was able to like test it in a spirit or in a scientific way to kind of prove these beings, or is it just like a higher understanding? Or yeah, what Rudolf Steiner meant by spiritual science is that you can understand the laws of the spiritual world in the same way you can understand the laws of the physical world. There's right. a lawfulness to the way the invisible world interacts with the material world. And he, he was able to, to demonstrate this, but not through, again, classical science is primarily focused on the material world. But he gave methods for discerning the supersensible world by heightening one's innate capacities for thinking, for reverence, for character, building our character. And he showed how if we cultivate these inner capacities, we can learn to interact with these beings. Now, mind you, there's been a lot of traditional scientific research done showing the benefits of biodynamic practices. So that kind of research has been done and Rudolf Steiner encouraged it. He gave these farmers all these ideas and he said, now go experiment with it, research it in all manner of ways and you know, you figure it out. But here's some things that I think will be helpful to you. And so that's been done. There's been many traditional scientific studies. But these subtle forces I'm talking about, they're not, they're not perceptible to scientific instruments. So the effects of them, to some degree, are perceptible. So they're outside of basically the five senses, is kind of what you're saying. They are. They have their being outside of anything that we see and touch and smell and taste. But we can experience them in a subtle way, if we're attentive to the natural world, we can learn how to begin to experience the working of these subtle forces. Um, well, the first part of that is you're saying, what are they in this uh, super sensible realm? What what are they doing? You know, are they they're I mean, okay? Yeah. They are building up nature. So this okay. is the thing: the nature spirits, the elemental beings, the spiritual beings working in nature. They are responsible for nature. It simply wouldn't be there without them. They're not like a warm, fuzzy cloud hanging over the woods, okay? There'd be no growth in the trees. They're like the, literally the forces of nature. They are literally the forces of nature. Science studies their effects on the material plane. But if you go past that, you discover that what are called the forces of nature are living beings. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's yes. pretty powerful. I mean, it's exciting. I mean, it's pretty much every like childhood dream like of mine come true. To, like, to, to like think that. Yes, yes, it opens up a whole new territory. I would say, and it, again, it opens up new territory for the healing of the earth. Again, the earth doesn't just want us to stop doing things. They want us to proactively take an interest in nature and how plants grow and how animals live on the surface of the earth and and how we can begin to create human societies that are in harmony with the forces of nature so just like there's animals and plants 
and fungi and all sorts of like micro uh uh let's see microbes and Mm -hmm. we can see all those maybe not microbes but whatever um but so these are unseen basically like unseen beings like at least by the for most people yes and so animals that we can see they eat food they take in sustenance so what these beings how do they get their sustenance or do they or how does that work well that's a very interesting question kyle um the the beings of nature draw their sustenance generally speaking out of what in biodynamics we call cosmic forces These are forces that ray down to the earth from the sun and the moon and the planets and the constellations. So the earth is bathed every moment in the most extraordinary outpouring of forces from the cosmos. And these elemental beings and nature spirits, they are on the one hand nourished by these forces. That's how they live. And, that, and these forces inform how they go about their work building up plants and the soil. And their, their work in nature is, is nourished by cosmic forces. Cosmic forces. So just energy coming from outside the planet. Yes. Again, what you call energy, I would say, there's a lot more than simply... Um, what science would call energy, you know, or the what science would call the plasma that radiates out from the sun, for example. There's far more going on out there, okay? Yeah. But but yes, they're drawing their nourishment from the supersensible forces that radiate out of the cosmos. So when you're doing something like preparing a biodynamic prep, are you kind of like consciously creating these or stirring these cosmic forces? Yes. Yeah, so here's the thing. So Kyle, you're talking about the fact that in biodynamics, <clears throat> besides all these good organic farming practices that are very important in biodynamics, uh, there's also um, something called the biodynamic preparations, or I like to call them earth medicines. There's Rudolf Steiner basically said to restore the health of the earth at this time, given all the immense attacks on the health of the earth, that we need to go beyond simply good agricultural practices. We need to create special kinds of medicines for the earth. And you're absolutely right. These medicines help the elemental beings and the nature forces because they they need help from the human realm as well and not just their ability to draw their nourishment from the cosmic forces is becoming weakened by all of our air pollution and light pollution and water pollution and sound pollution they need something that can help them counteract that that can help them deal with that and that's what these earth medicines do they give the forces of nature extra powers of healing extra nourishment wow it's amazing well you are listening to radio free space 91.9 wdrt and this is the conscious bro show i am talking to robert karbelnikov and we are talking about 
elementals and nature and the forces of nature and mm. the super mm. sensible realms of nature. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, so with all this pollution and destruction of nature going on, you're saying that basically damages these subtle forces of nature to be able to do their job. These beings have a harder time being able to, to do what they do in nature. Yes. Um, that's part of the story. Um, in biodynamics, there's also an understanding that it's not only the challenges in nature are not only caused by that. It's also that the earth is aging. The whole earth is actually getting harder and it's, it's going through an aging process. And, it, and that adds to the challenge of the nature spirits and continuing to enliven the earth. And so I really love this picture because it really is a picture of just life. Like everything's alive. The earth is alive. There's beings that we see that are alive. There's beings that we don't see that are alive. And they're all playing their part. Absolutely. They're, they're, we live in the most remarkable ecology. Like if ecology, if the science of ecology would begin to take into account the subtle forces of nature, we would begin to develop methodologies to deal with climate change, for example, to deal with water pollution and air pollution that are completely unheard of right now, unconsidered. Because one of the biggest problems with the environmental movement is we're, we're trying to solve problems with the same mindset with which those problems were created. Almost all these problems come out of a materialistic way of thinking of the world, a mechanistic way treating plants and animals like little protein factories. Um, that's not the nature of reality. And that's how we've got a lot of these problems. So if we want to solve the environmental problems, it's not just about a mechanistic equation of how can we put less carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, carbon's relevant, but the reality is so much more subtle. And when we start working with the spirits of nature, the ability, I would say, to clean up rivers and lakes, to, to clean up the atmosphere. These, these nature spirits are like the immune system of the earth. Or you could even say they're like the liver function of the earth. We know how the, our liver de detoxifies us, right? So the earth has all these organs. The earth has a heart. The earth has kidneys. The earth has pancreas and a liver. This is unknown to modern, to modern science, right? The earth is a living being. And if we start learning about this, we will be able to bring healing to the earth in, in completely new ways. So you're starting to sound like Zach Bush. You ever listen to Zach Bush? <laughs> I have listened a little bit Which to is, Zach that, Bush. That, that's a good thing. Yeah. Because he talks about how um, the soil and the, the fauna and like the plants are kind of like reminiscent to our like gut and the yes. living organisms and the bacteria in our gut and if the reason why there's so many unhealthy human beings is because look at the health of the soil and our farming practices and like the roundup and That's gly right. glyphosate and all that stuff you cannot separate the health of the earth and the health of the human it's mm. it's absurd to think you can and i would say in a certain way what's going on now with covid and like let's say the, the, this experimental vaccine that's being rolled out, um, these are strategies that will further separate the human being from the earth. Like it's human beings thinking you can solve problems 
by separate, by creating further separation. Like rather than looking at the greater environmental context that has led to this illness, we think, ah, we can create one of our new vaccines. And then, yeah, then we can continue to ignore the health of the air, ignore the health of the water. It's a crazy way of thinking. So you're saying that like the way that the mainstream is going about it now is they found this like little microscopic thing and it's like, that's the issue. It's just that rather than a whole encompassing of the whole being. Correct. Viruses are part of this ecosystem of the earth. They play a very important role. They are also connected to supersensible forces, right? Really? I have not um, I mean, there's nothing in nature that doesn't have a spiritual corollary. Um, so the idea that we would make the virus the enemy and think that we as human beings have the knowledge to defeat it is, um, it's just not clear thinking. I mean, it's not that, that um, there's not a reality to the virus. It's not that people can't get sick with the help of this virus, but the real nature of illness is much, much deeper and more subtle. Nobody simply gets sick because they have contact with the virus. It's far more complicated. What? How do they get sick? <laughs> <laughs> well, they get sick for one thing because their, their immune systems have been weakened through mm -hmm. diet, through the quality of air, through spending lots of time in front of computers. I hear that. People also get sick. Um, honestly, this brings up the whole question of what is the role of illness in in human life, in human evolution? Is illness just some kind of um, mistake in the operating system? Or is illness part of how we heal? Part of how our immune systems grow stronger is by encountering something that they can't quite deal with. It brings about, quote, illness symptoms that we find difficult. And then by working through those symptoms, Mind you, often with help, but the symptoms are the path to greater health. It's just like fevers in young children. Children need to get sick. They need to have fevers. It's how they build up a healthy immune system. Mm -hmm. so, so trying to suppress the flu, for example, I would say one of the causes of COVID is just the, the incredible increase in the use of flu shots, suppressing the expression of flu in the population to the degree we have. Flu is a necessary illness. It, it strengthens the immune system of human beings. It shouldn't be suppressed to the degree we are. So when you say suppressed, like as it, they're like suppressing the symptoms of the flu or they're trying to like, how is it being suppressed? Both. I mean, there's suppression of the symptoms, right? People get very afraid of fever gets beyond a certain point. Mm -hmm. So they rush to the hospital. Granted, there's obviously some people for whom, you know, they're so fragile that flu can be a life-threatening illness. Right. But we've become like our whole culture, like a helicopter parent around illness. And if somebody gets a fever above a certain point, we think they have to be rushed to the hospital or mm -hmm. take a lot of aspirin to have their fever suppressed. We've lost touch with the innate healing properties of the human being. So you're saying you're saying that like when someone's showing the symptoms of a flu or fever, it's almost a good sign because that's showing that the body is doing what it needs to fight it and release yes. it kind of deal. Yes. Yes. And and maybe maybe 
they needed that illness and so their body was looking for a good virus that would get them sick <laughs> you know i mean um why would they need it because they've been breathing toxic air or oh. getting too much contact with electromagnetic radiation or leading an unhealthy lifestyle who knows people human beings come onto this earth from the spiritual world kyle we're not we're also not just random collections of molecules we've come to earth with a mission and a purpose and oh. and and prior to birth we make some decisions also about what we need for our own spiritual growth and sometimes that involves illness Sometimes that involves being born with a disability. I mean, human life is designed for our spiritual growth. It's not designed for our comfort. Uh, we need a certain amount of comfort to grow, but it's not all about being free of illness, in my opinion. Illness has a mission in our lives. And so sometimes people develop illnesses because they really need to learn and grow in a certain area and i'm not saying that means we shouldn't try to cure that illness but for example in anthroposophic medicine you're always looking both at what are the medicines someone needs when they have a let's say a major illness comes into their life but also what's the inner dimension of that illness what are they what perhaps do they need to learn or look at or maybe there's new capacities they haven't been new new skills they haven't been developing like illness often comes into our lives with a very specific purpose to move us in a new direction well i think it's a very wise perspective that you're bringing here because i'm hearing you kind of say that on and i don't think a lot of people look at illness this way on from a spiritual perspective it could almost be kind of like a wake-up call like it could kind of be like you know something to kind of get your attention or something yes to uh, who knows for what like maybe you're yes. not you're going down the right path and then also i'm hearing you say if someone's in an unhealthy environment taking in like too many emfs or toxins or something almost like that sickness would be a sign that their body is releasing that even or like or maybe a sign that they need to get out of that toxic environment any or all of the above certainly yeah, yeah. yeah we all take in an immense number of toxins on this planet right now mm -hmm. and we need we need help to move them through our system. And so illness can be one way of doing that. So then um, as far as having like a healthy organism or like a healthy planet, you're saying that a more holistic way would be to, um, to look, for, look at the spiritual health of the organism. Well, to include the spiritual dimension. So I'm not, I'm not saying that modern medicine or modern science don't have really valuable contributions to offer to the health of the planet. But what I'm saying is if those contributions are not integrated with an understanding of the inner dimension of the human being or the inner dimension of the earth, of nature, of a particular landscape, right? That those two things need to be integrated. So it's not one or the other. But I, I absolutely think that as a society, as a civilization, unless we begin to integrate a spiritual understanding of things and integrate that with our, with our scientific, that um, we're going downhill very fast. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I, I hear you. Um, so I've heard you talk about um, 
like the breath of the earth. Yes. Like the earth breathes in and the earth breathes out. Kind of like basically like we do, except for it's a lot longer. Do you want to describe that process? Yeah, so in biodynamics and in in what's called anthroposophy. So anthroposophy is the name of that Rudolf Steiner gave to his to his spiritual science, okay? His philosophy. Um, there's an understanding that in the course of a year, the earth goes through a major inhalation and a major exhalation. And this inhalation and exhalation, we experience as the seasons, right? So in the spring now, right, when we pass, when we pass the winter solstice and we, the days begin to grow lighter, so mind you, this in-breath and out-breath is connected with the movement of the earth and the movements of the sun, but it involves more than that. The earth begins to exhale. It begins to breathe out. What do I mean the earth? I mean the inner dimension of the earth that we've been talking about, the elemental beings and the nature spirits. In the winter, many of them are living in the depths of the earth. They go into the depths of the earth. They don't go to sleep down there like we think of a bear going into hibernation. But they regather their forces in the depths of the earth in the winter. And in the spring, they begin to reemerge. And with the plant life and the insects and the air and the rain, and we begin to experience the exhalation of the earth. And this exhalation lasts all the way until midsummer. And, and, and we experience it, right? Whether we, whether we understand it or think of it as a spiritual thing, we all know what it feels like when spring comes and this, this mood of expansion that we feel less contracted as right. human beings because our spirit is also expanding in a certain way. And then after midsummer, very gradually, we often don't notice it until we get into August and September, but this inhalation has begun. There's a very gradual contracting and, and inhalation that, that coincides with the plants beginning to fade and wither and seed and fruit formation beginning to happen. And so, yeah, the earth, it has a breathing cycle. And you could say a lot of climate change, a lot of what's happening right now is the earth is struggling to breathe properly. The, the earth is having difficulty because of our crazy civilization breathing well. We have kind of, we've created a little bit of an asthmatic earth. Wow. <laughs> um, I want to say that, I don't know if you've ever, um, any of you listeners or you, Robert, have ever looked at like, what do they call it when they, when they, uh, you can see a flower grow. What is, what is that when they put the camera and you can see things that yes, take a long time yes. to go really fast? Um, they call that, um, <laughs> that's not important. Time-lapse. 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 So yes. if you ever look at a time-lapse of like, yes. uh, of like in Africa, like or around the Nile when it gets really green yes. during the summer and then it goes away and there, there's all these different time-lapse that you can do and it, you really get the, uh, you can really see that it does appear like the earth's breathing when you see like the green go out and the green go in and the water totally. go out and the water go in. It's there's pretty There's so many subtle... 
breathing processes. You know, there, there are people who've studied um, the expansion and contraction of pine cones and how they're influenced actually by certain movements of the planets. And there's so many incredible subtle things going Ooh, on. Or like the water being moved by the, or the tides being exactly, moved by the Exactly, everybody can acknowledge, oh yeah, the moon moves the tides, but they can't imagine that perhaps Saturn, Mars, and Venus, and Mercury are also having these extraordinary effects on the subtle dimensions of nature. But that is the reality. Well, it makes sense. And then something, I don't know what, is making the Earth spin like a top in the procession of the equinoxes. Do we know <laughs> yes. what that is? <laughs> yes. When, you, when you're talking about this stuff, I can't help but think of the movie Fantasia. Did you ever watch Fantasia? Yeah, many years ago. So like right. they have that one part, I just think of two, that, like maybe the newer Fantasia and the older one. But the older one, they have like these like ice fairies going around and like painting the frost all over the leaves. Do you know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, totally. That's what, I, that's what I'm thinking of when you're talking about the subtle forces of nature. I think, I think most artists uh, have an intuitive sense that the mm. world around them is alive. I mean, why do we love Van Gogh? Why? Tell me. Why is Van Gogh and Monet, why are there these famous artists? Is because when people see this art, they feel the the integration of the in, invisible world and the and the visible world. That's art is a picture of it. It inspires us because it's actually in, in many respects a truer reality than what we see day to day walking outside our door and we're all busy and you know we just see flat spaces and you know doors and windows but when we look at a piece of art a, a work of art excuse me we begin to see into the actual nature of reality because artists feel this these things so when you say that it's alive does that mean like it's it's conscious it has actual consciousness like it's aware meaning these subtle dimensions of the universe yeah hyper aware way more aware than we are right <laughs> yes wow yeah so the level all... the level of consciousness well this is this is a complicated question it's i'm not saying that every single plant like if you have a garden that uh, necessarily every single plant is conscious in the way you and i are right but there is a consciousness in the plant kingdom and in the animal kingdom and if you penetrate not simply to the individual plant, but to the, the spiritual beings who hold the archetypes of the plants and of the animals, you see the, the rose and the sunflower and all the different species. Where do species come from, Kyle? <laughs> I don't know. Where do they come why, from? Tell me, why isn't the earth just covered with plantiness? And animalness. Why isn't it just one big green carpet? Yeah. No, we have speciation. And speciation we have because there's a wide variety of spiritual beings that are working down onto the earth and in, and informing plant life and animal life. Is and this one? Yeah. Is this like Davis? The D uh, the Divic beings or the Davis is a term for these beings that... Uh, comes in certain traditions certain people use it okay gotcha. and so um, I sometimes use it too just because it's a short and easy word um, sometimes um, in anthroposophy like the the animal spirits will be called the group souls of the animals right so like the cows all have a group soul 
that is that holds the archetype of cowness. And, and then you'd have like variations, like maybe like buffalo and of course, uh, like you know, like the all these variations of... have developed out of the interaction of this archetype with different topographies of the earth and different time periods. So we have an archetype of cowness, but then this archetype manifests in different regions and different places differently because there's a there's a dialogue going on between that archetype in the spiritual world and the earth itself so we get buffaloes in the west and we get water buffaloes in the east what have you we we get this incredible diversity wow well i'm having an absolutely fascinating conversation with robert karbelnikov uh, my name is kyle glenn and you're listening to the conscious bro show on 91.9 wdrt radio free space so I'm very familiar with the phrase, as above, so below, as within, so without. I really resonate with that philosophy or axiom. And I think it's really interesting how you're talking about how the earth is having a hard time breathing. Yes. And now we have a virus that makes it hard for people to breathe. And people are having a hard time breathing with a mask on. That just yes. seems really interesting to me. Not, not surprising, is it? Yeah. Yeah, I think it would be, it would be fruitful to look at this virus through a bigger lens mm -hmm. you know it's fascinating to me also that the the protests of last summer the george floyd protests you know the the meme if you will was i can't breathe oh wow yeah right so it's all reflecting it's all reflecting something absolutely fundamental that's going on on the earth there's a difficulty in the breathing process of humanity of the earth itself as a being of our immune system really of our you could say our body soul and spirit are struggling to breathe so how, how do we help the earth's process to breathe like what how does that well that's a great question. That's a big question. That's part of what one is doing in biodynamic agriculture. So I would say every biodynamic farm, and I don't want to be dogmatic about this. So I want to say every organic farm and many farms where there is a, a farmer who loves their land and who is trying to farm in a way on that land that's in harmony with the forces of nature, even while they're, yeah, of course, trying to be productive and they need to make a living. So they're not just out there hobby farming, but wherever a farmer is farming with a certain integrity, I would say, and again, this can be heightened in biodynamics, then that farm becomes a place where nature can breathe. And it, it helps the whole landscape around it. This is something that's also not known, but farms, when they're managed well, become sources of health for the whole landscape around them because they create a, a sanctuary for the nature spirits, where the nature spirits can come and where they can breathe and do their work. And um, Now, you may think of a, a sanctuary as more like a forest somewhere that's away from human civilization. That's true too. There are beautiful sanctuaries of nature because they're protected from human activity. But the cutting edge of the environmental movement, the cutting edge is agriculture. It's not 
protecting spaces, that's important. But the question, the fundamental question is, can human beings learn to work in cooperation with nature and create a sanctuary on a farm that breathes with the same purity and strengthening power that we feel when we're out in the woods on a mountaintop or what have you? That's the, I think, the fundamental question. And so true agriculture, true landscape management um, enormously helps the earth breathe. And not only would it help the earth breathe, it would um, increase yields even or make it more resilient or what it, what does it do in, in that terms? It not abs- that we should be focused. Yes. On <laughs> well, no yields are relevant, but in the first place, I would say it increases resilience. resilience. So there was traditional, there's been traditional scientific study done of biodynamic farms in Europe. Okay. Europe is where biodynamics began. So there's many more farms there. And what this research showed was that, um, the biodynamic farms didn't necessarily have greater yield than the other farms. They had similar yield to the other farms, but they did much better. These farms did much better under stressful conditions, under too much rain or not enough rain, too much heat, not enough heat. When the earth breathes properly, it builds resilience into the system. And this is what this is what biodynamic practices do, and um, and I would say the other thing they do is when the plants and animals on such a farm, when this breathing cycle can become healthy, that's where nutrition actually comes from in our food. That's where flavor actually comes from. When plants breathe properly, right? When the elemental beings are breathing properly and are able to breathe properly and they're building up soil and they're building up wheat and rye and tomatoes and turnips, then these plants have the nutrition that we value so much because where do vitamins and minerals and where does it all actually come from it's a good question they're they're a materialization of the working of these elemental beings in the soil and in the air so it's like a product of them it's a product of the working wow. of the of the nature forces it's really cool and when a plant it. can't breathe it also becomes devitalized so when rudolf steiner founded biodynamic agriculture one of the biggest concerns at that time was was the health of food, was the declining quality of food. And Rudolf Steiner said something very remarkable. He was asked at a certain point by um, a young person who went on to become a very important <laughs> leader in the movement. But this young person said to him in a typical fashion, how come, how come all these people who are studying your work, Dr. Steiner, how come they're not doing more with it? They just sit around reading books and, and we're not making radical transformation to society. How come? Really challenging Rudolf Steiner, right? <laughs> and Rudolf Steiner said, well, you know, that's a very interesting question. You know the reason? It's because of the devitalization of our food. It's because 
our foods being devitalized and human beings cannot gather the forces they need from their food to um, to use an anthroposophical term to incarnate their spiritual mission on the earth to to bring forward their deeper capacity and purpose to do that you need food that has real vitality to it real real vitality and and when we eat a lot of food that does not have that vitality, we become dull. We become less able to be who we are. Are you saying that vitality actually creates the vitamins and minerals and the health things we need? Or this is just kind of like spiritual energy and sustenance in the food or both? I think I would say it's both. When It gets into a very complicated question of what actually happens when we eat food. Right. Like, what is nourishing us? Is it really just the chemical constituents of the food? It's, it's interesting that in the biodynamic movement, at a certain point, some scientists who were working with Dr. Steiner, they developed a way of evaluating the life forces in different food products. This is a traditional scientific method called chromatography. And um, this method is being used, it's been used in Europe primarily. There's a few people doing it here, but it's a way of seeing, taking a food substance and, and seeing the level of vitality or coherence, you could say, within that particular food. Like life force. Yeah. Wow. That yeah. sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah, sensitive. It's also called sensitive crystallization or chromatography. Um, it's a, uh, yeah, it's been used also in human health. There's a way of doing sensitive crystallization with blood samples from human beings. They've used it to diagnose cancer. Um, so anyway, I can just hear, I'm, I just had a moment here of thinking, oh, there's a bunch of your listeners who are going, I'm fed up with all this pseudoscience, you oh, know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. What do you say to that? Sorry, dear listeners, but um, there's no hope for humanity without a new science. There just mm. isn't. Yes, maybe some of the first blush, the first efforts to create a new science are, are a little bit flaky. I'm not claiming that every wild New Age philosophy is, is onto the truth, okay? But I see no hope for humanity unless we, we develop a insight, a working relationship with the invisible dimension of ourselves and of, of nature it needs to be done. That's what our time is about. And if we want to hold on to the seeming certainty of materialistic science, well, it's just like holding on to the seeming certainty of our current political institutions, our current economic institutions. They're all born out of this materialism. And it's, it's, it won't last. We need new economic institutions. We need new types of political institutions. We have to recreate society at this time or we're, it's all going to fall apart. It sounds like a, kind of like a paradigm shift, almost like when we found out that the earth circled the sun or that the earth was round or, you know, precisely. stuff like precisely. that. Precisely. We are in the midst of an immense paradigm shift and we have to take it seriously. It's pretty encouraging, though, that you're saying, and I believe this too, but you're saying not only is spirit real, you can study it with science. You can. If you, 
if you understand its reality, you can design traditional experiments that will reveal its efficacy. It's just a different way. It's not so much just all about the observing, or is it? Because like the whole scientific experiment's all about like observing it physically. You know what I mean? I mean, this gets into the question again of what we mean by spiritual science. Okay, so like from the perspective of anthroposophy, let's just say thinking, right? Our thoughts are one of the most profound expressions of the invisible dimension of the human being. That mm. thinking is the process by which we discern the inner dimension of things in the first place. So what Rudolf Steiner was trying to then develop was to show that if we, if we enhance our thinking, if we discipline our thinking, our thoughts can penetrate into this invisible dimension of the world and, and in a way that's practical and logical. Um, so, so spiritual science is not about doing away with thought and just embracing the irrational um, somehow and thinking that that makes us more spiritual. Um, no, it, it's about taking science, scientific discipline and enhancing it. Like, I guess a simple analogy I could make is in, in science, we enhance the senses all the time through microscopes and telescopes and all kinds of ways we enhance right. our sensory capacities. Well, in spiritual science, we we use spiritual practices to enhance our inner capacities of thinking, feeling, and willing to be able to penetrate into the invisible world and see things we can't normally see. A whole new paradigm. It's I, a whole new paradigm. Um, well, at least <laughs> to the mainstream. But uh, I wanted to ask you one thing before we get off here. Yeah. I, I remember you said something uh, to me one time that was pretty fascinating. You were talking about the topography of this continent. You're talking about something along the lines of how in the Western continent, it's rising. You can see that with the Rockies mm -hmm. In the lower continent or on the, on the Eastern continent, it's falling and it's kind of creating almost a split in, in the continent, which is represented in the people with, we can see how divisive things are right now and how polarized they are now. I just wanted to see if you wanted to, Speak more yeah, so there's there's a discipline there's a discipline within anthroposophy. Um, there's a there's a way of understanding l larger landscapes. It's sometimes called spiritual geography, and it's it's um, and so one can look at continents, and you could look at the inner character of a continent, and see see the struggle that's happening among the people living on that continent. And so North America has a very particular um, quality and destiny within the, within the organism of the planet, within all the different continents, you could say are different organs within the earth. And North America as a whole is... Um, as a whole, it's very connected to the will. It's very connected to the reason that the, the character of our country is so much doers, right? right? We are a doing place. You know, there's and there's traditional scientific research that actually shows that people who move to this continent, their limbs grow longer. 
Wow. <laughs> and the shape of their head actually changes. So there's forces on this continent that change people. And there's forces that bring people into their will nature. That's another bit of anthroposophical terminology I'm using. And, but if you go deeper then into this continent, you see more subtle distinctions between the East and the Middle and the West and the North and the South. The, the continent is a living being. But one thing you can discern is that um, the, the polarization in our culture is also a reflection of the fact that the Eastern seaboard and the Western seaboard if I can put it that way, the East Coast and the West Coast um, are um, they're in a polaric relation to one another. The West Coast is, is rising physically. The East Coast is sinking. That's a fact scientifically. But it's a picture of something. It's a picture of the different character of these two places. And the, the middle of the continent, there's a reason why people call it the heartland. The, the heart is the organ that mediates between um, our nerve sense, our head, and our limbs, right? Mm -hmm. So the West is like the limbs of North America, and the East is like the head. And the Midwest, literally, the, the middle of the country, has a relation to the heart. Um, this is a very long topic. It would take... A lot of time to go into it in more depth. There's also this same polarity working north-south, but I guess I would just say yes. It's true that the Americas here, here in North America, we are struggling to harmonize our thoughts and our will, and it's sort of a task of the Midwest. If you look at the writers, the culture of the Midwest, it has a certain character. Um, but it's it's weak right now. It needs to become stronger. This this heart force. Of I America. love that word, heart force <laughs> that derives in the Midwest. It yeah. has a certain um, it has a certain rootedness here in the Midwest. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we only got two more minutes to go. Uh, is there <laughs> anything that you would like to leave our listeners today that live in the? So it sounds like that's pretty significant. Uh, responsibility placed on people in the Midwest being in the heartland they they almost like they can help the the country reach equanimity or something well a lot of what you know when I talk about integrating science and spirituality or integrating the invisible and the visible or the inner and the outer another way to think about it it's integrating the head and the heart mm -hmm. we have different ways of knowing through the heart and these ways of knowing through the heart, it can, it can become sentimentalized and it can become, you know, in our culture, it tends to be just like, oh, yeah, that's some subjective thing that each of us have things we love and things we don't love and blah, blah, blah. But the deeper wisdom of the heart needs to be integrated with the head. And it's the heart that can see into these invisible worlds and that can help us. Um, bring down these inspirations that we need right now if we're going to bring transformation into this culture. So I think it's this integration of head and heart is what comes to mind for me at the moment. Okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for coming on. So it sounds like if we can get it together in the heartland, that would 
It would be a great help. Great help. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on, Robert. It was thank you. Amazing Kyle. conversation. It was really fun to talk with you. Yeah. Likewise. Uh, you are listening to 91.9 Radio Free Space WDRT, and this is the Conscious Bro Show, and this is Conscious Bro out.